Hello and welcome to episode 56 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Professor Bob Graham, the Des Renford Professor of Medicine at UNSW and the inaugural director of the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute. Bob is here to tell us about basic science, commercialization, and spiders. <laughs> Bob Graham, how are you? I'm fine, Salvador, and thank you for having us on. Oh, thanks very much for joining us today. Look, I'd like to start out with something very broad, because I know you're at Victor Chang, but you're not a medical doctor, as I understand it. You are a scientist. And uh, no, not quite correct. I'm a, I'm a medical doctor and still actively see patients. I'm what you oh, call wow. in the United States a clinician scientist. Well, then you are a medical doctor and a scientist. That's all right. the better, because we'd like to hear what is basic science and what does it mean for medical doctors? Well, basic science is the underpinning of all new treatments and developments that help with the diagnostics and treatment options for patients. It's, it is the understanding of mechanisms by which the body uh, works both in health and in disease. And by understanding those things, we come up with new ways of treating disease by looking at what's different between health and disease and what's underpinning that difference and then hoping to target that to try and revert the disease back into a normal state. So that's a sort of a long-winded definition, but it is doing basic laboratory research, what we call bench research, uh, and then in the future, hopefully that can be translated into uh, a new product or a new diagnostic, a new drug, uh, to help people, but it is based fundamentally understanding how things work in biology and in disease. Well, I have to apologize for not having done my research properly, but I'm even more interested now to hear about how does being a lab scientist improve your work as a medical doctor and vice versa? Yeah, I think the vice versa is uh, probably more relevant because when you see disease and disease evolving in patients and when you look after them and treat them, you get to see where the gaps are, where are the holes, where do we still need new treatments or new diagnostics? And then we can take that to the bench and then try and understand how things work. Uh, so we hopefully can come back from the bench once we've discovered the targets that might help with the disease and test them out in patients and hopefully develop a new therapeutic. So both inform each other, but from my perspective, being a clinician really helps in defining the problems which need to be addressed at the bench before we can get a solution that can come back to the bedside. All right. Now, I tease everyone with spiders, but you got to tell us about the spider. Yeah, look, I'm delighted to tell you about the spiders. And let me first uh, preface my remarks by saying that this has been a joint effort by colleagues at the University of Queensland, particularly led by Professor Glenn King. Glenn's a very interesting and clever guy who has a particular interest, strangely enough, it might seem to some people, in venom. So he's interested in all sorts of nasty creatures like spiders and assassin bugs and scorpions. Uh, and the reason for an interest in venoms is that there are many, many different types of molecules that are used by these creatures to envenomate their prey. 
and they, they have to act very quickly and they have to be very stable to last until uh, the uh, animal is about to strike and hit its prey. So they are, they are what you might call a treasure trove of interesting compounds. And amongst these, um, unbeknownst to anyone actually that there were funnel web spiders on Fraser Island, uh, Glenn and his team discovered that there were, and they wanted to understand purely for curiosity, what are the, the peptides or the proteins that make venoms in, the, in this funnel web spider as compared to say the funnel web spider, which is more traditionally known down in the east coast of Australia, the southeast coast, New South Wales in particular. Uh, and they, they're sort of cousins, these two spiders. And he found out that, uh, and really just trying to understand what happens in evolution, what's different between these venoms and that in other spiders, he found that it contained a very interesting peptide that had been reported before in a tarantula, very similar, but much more potent. And that um, peptide, that small protein, blocks a very interesting channel, which is activated by acid. So it turns out the reason this is interesting is that when you get a, a stroke or a heart attack, uh, some of the tissue, some of the nerve cells or the heart muscle cells die. But that that's what happens immediately. But then the surrounding tissue is also not getting enough oxygen, which is what happens when you block a blood vessel. And so it goes from using oxygen to make energy. It needs to make energy. Heart muscle cells need energy to contract to using sugars to metabolize. And the byproduct of that is most people will know when you've exercised too hard is lactic acid, which causes the pain in your legs. So the lactic acid activates this little channel in either the nerve cells or the heart muscle cells. And that, that stimulates a pathway within the cell to cause the cell to die. So you now get a spread of the initial damage to a much, much larger area. So if you block that channel, you can prevent that additional spread of damage and reduce if you give this, we've shown in preclinical studies, if you give this within two hours of a stroke, you can reduce the damage by up to 80% with, with accompanying functional improvements. So we're very excited about this. I've been in, in research for a long time and this is about one of the most exciting developments I've seen in 25 years. So. We're trying to now take this and commercialize this because we think it's going to be a real, uh, a real uh, game changer for people with stroke and heart attacks because at the moment we have no good treatments for either of them. This seems to me to illustrate the importance of doing basic science here in Australia as opposed to just relying on basic science done elsewhere. Uh, I mean, is the only reason to do science in Australia that we might find some rare animal in Australia that has a special uh, protein that they produce? Or are there broader reasons why we should be doing basic science here in Sydney instead of just taking it in from the rest of the world? Yeah, look, I think that concept of just taking it in from the rest of the world is, uh, is really a flawed concept. We need to, first of all, we're good at it. We have uh, people who are uh, well-educated and uh, we have good universities that produce very bright people. Um, we might only represent 0.13% of the world's population. We put out 2% of the world's research. So we're leading up there with the rest of the world. We also not only should do it because we're good at it and because it's important because it helps people who've got illnesses, but also by having people who understand 
uh, science and, and, and research, we also have better doctors. Uh, you asked me before how the two interplay, but by understanding research and being able to interpret research done outside of Australia, and that's what you need to be able to do, you also have better clinicians. So it, it attracts better clinicians, it makes better clinicians, and it's absolutely vital that we do research here in Australia and not just rely upon the rest of the world. I mean, you take what's happened with, with COVID, for example, uh, although we've contributed very meaningfully to COVID research, we have to be able to interpret what all the studies mean, uh, what are the findings? We didn't have much COVID here, fortunately, in Australia. So we have to understand what's being reported from other countries where they have huge amounts of COVID, you know, like Italy and Brazil and the United States. And we need people who understand how to interpret the data. So that's why we need to have people who are active in research uh, for, for all those reasons. I think it's absolutely vital. And the concept that we should just rely on research from outside, I think, is a, a massively flawed one. Go back to the, the, this funnel web spider discovery. Mm -hmm. Why would you not, why do you need to find these sorts of chemicals in nature instead of simply synthesizing them in the laboratory? What, you know, how, does, how does research of the, the bench research that you're doing in the lab interact with natural science research being done by biologists and others out in the wild? Well, I think that this this is natural science research in that what you've done is you've gone out and you found a, a creature that produces something that, that is in, out in nature. And we're now harnessing that for good, hopefully. Um, so you, you the other way you could have done it, I guess, is once we understood that this channel is important for the spread of tissue damage, we could have tried to develop a drug that blocks it. Now, that's, a, that's not an easy thing to do. You have to use all sorts of uh, machinations, including computer programs, to try and predict what sort of drug would fit into. And we don't even know what part of the molecule is the important one that allows it to be activated. That takes a lot of research. So it is a possibility, and there have been advances that way. But an easier way is just to screen a lot of compounds, including potentially venoms, in the hope that you'll find one, that you'll stumble across one that importantly inhibits that channel. So there are two ways to do the research and both of them have validity. Um, and it turned out that someone else had already shown that the tarantula toxin blocks this channel. And all that, all that Glenn was trying to do, he actually got his postdoc onto it and said, let's see how similar the funnel web spider toxin is compared to the tarantula toxin and lo and behold, they were very, very similar, except that the funnel web spider toxin was about twice as long and it was much more potent. Uh, and so it's a, it's a wonderful potential lead drug, if you like, that we can hopefully exploit. Now, forgive my 30-year-old undergraduate level understanding of mm -hmm. biology and chemistry. Is there some sense in which spider venoms are particularly important for this sort of research because they have some kind of effect of paralyzing uh, an animal? Is there some relationship between that paralysis effect and what you're discovering in the lab? No, no not directly, but um, you have to understand, as I mentioned earlier on, that any of these creatures that use venoms to inactivate their prey or to kill their prey, they have to produce molecules that have evolved over time to act very quickly 
uh, on either a channel or on the heart or on blood vessels that will rapidly inactivate or kill the prey. So these have evolved over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, and they are particularly stable uh, molecules uh, because they need to be stored usually in a, in a venom sac and be sitting around for a long time until a prey comes along and then within microseconds it kills or inactivates the prey. So that's why they're particularly interesting to look at because we know those properties uh, of venoms uh, and they are they've turned out to be a treasure trove of interesting compounds. Now, let me give a quick shout out to our, our viewers, Anthony, Stephen, Elizabeth. If you have questions for Professor Bob Graham, please get them in at any time. Bob, I'd like you to, again, to draw on your you know, much deeper experience of these things to help me understand the difference between commercializing science, which it sounds like is, you know, what you're looking to do with this, uh, this Infenza mm -hmm. venom, uh, and what we call translational medicine, which seems to be all the rage these days. Yes, uh, uh, happy to do that. Um, there's two words in the uh, in the biomedical jargon that really rub up my uh, rub me up the wrong way. One of them is trans translation, and the other is collaboration. Uh, we we translation is a continuum all the way from basic science right through until um, developing a new treatment or a new diagnostic. So I, I see it as a continuum. People want to break it up into translation. Um, translation just means the harnessing of new knowledge, which comes from basic science, to produce a new drug, device, diagnostic, or treatment option. Um, and commercialization is the process of actually bringing that new um, treatment or drug or diagnostic to the market. And they're, they're, while they have overlap, they're extremely different. The translational people, uh, biomedical people like myself, who are uh, looking at patients, who are treating patients, and who are doing research at the basic science level, whereas commercialization requires an understanding of those issues, but also an understanding of, of business and all the tax implications and uh, how to get funding for that. So there's a whole new lot of different skill sets that are required to commercialize and to translate. Plans to commercialize this Infenza product? Sorry, I didn't catch that. Do you and your team have plans to commercialize this Infenza product? Yeah, we have. Uh, we've now formed a company which we did this year, and we have uh, now been negotiating. Um, to get a license of the patented uh, uh, of this uh, compound, the peptide from the spider, which has been patented. We are uh, uh, just about to sign that license agreement. And once we have the license agreement, we're ready to go. And then we have to raise money. Um, and there are several ways in which that can be done. We've also got a number of good people who have got a lot more smarts than this than I do to help us out and to join the board. And we've also developed a scientific advisory board of people with a lot of smarts in this area, um, particularly in the translational side of things who can, who can advise the board. So it takes a big team effort and it takes an enormous amount of money. Um, the research is just the first step, but of course, without the research, you don't even have a product. 
but then it takes years and years and lots of money before you can do the clinical trials, the safety trials, the efficacy trials, and uh, to show that this works. And then you have to scale it up and you have to show that it works in large groups of people and how effective it is and how safe it is before you can get approval to market this as a drug. Well, I want to ask you more about that commercial process, but first, our viewer Anthony has a question about the genetics of this. He wants to know if, the, if people's individual genetics are important in determining the efficacy of chemicals like this uh, spider venom. Yeah, look, that's a good question, and I, uh, just before I answer that, let me just, uh, some people might be wonder, wondering, do we have to milk spiders all the time to get the venom? And I can... Fortunately, that's not the case. We now make it by recombinant uh, molecular biology. So we don't have to keep milking these spiders to get it, which would be very difficult to scale that up. Um, but the, the genetic underpinnings of responses to drugs is a very important issue and is the basis of what we call precision medicine, um, because some people respond well to a particular drug and some do not. Now, we don't know the answer to that in this case, but I can tell you that this channel um, has been preserved through evolution, which suggests that most of us have it. Um, and so far in all of the different models we've used to test it, preclinical model, animal models, we have not seen a big difference from one uh, animal to the next. The, the biological spread has been pretty small, which gives us confidence that the majority of people will respond very well to this. But there, there could be genetic modifiers that we have to still discover. And that's, a, that's an important issue. Bob, you've crushed my dreams of starting a spider dairy. That was just on my <laughs> list. That's the next thing I was going to do. Um, uh, look, back to the commercialization process. Realistically, this you know, clinical trials and getting approvals, raising venture capital funding, can you do that in Australia or inevitably are you going to have to commercialize this in the United States? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question, Salvador. So look, I think you can do it for the early stage development, um, right up until there are sort of different phases of development, the first in man and then the safety trials and then there's what's called phase one. And then you do the efficacy trials, phase 2A and 2B. And then you, after that phase, once you've shown that it's safe and effective, now you have to do large scale trials. And that's where the monies required become enormous. To bring a new drug to market these days from the beginning until you've got full license to, to, uh, for this drug is you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. So uh, we can do all the stuff up until at least phase 2B uh, before phase three, but once you get to phase three, we probably will either um, get a big farmer to to uh, work with us or buy us out. Uh, but it's going to be hard for us to do those big studies here in Australia, uh, or to get enough money to do them here in Australia very easily. There's been some exceptions, but by and large, once we get past the phase two B stage, they will be looking to out license uh, or to sell the company. Stephen has a related question, and I hope I'm uh, interpreting his question correctly. Can you raise the venture capital for this in Australia, or do you have to go overseas even just to get the, the VC funding? 
Yes, look, I hope I'm not uh, insulting some of my colleagues here in Australia. The, the venture capital market is fairly unsophisticated in Australia, or put it another way, they want their returns very quickly. And biological research takes time. Um, I, I was on a, a company, on a, on a founding board member of a company started in 2002, who have not yet had an IPO. They've been going all this time and they've made progress but uh, they, they, they haven't yet commercialized it. So it's a long undertaking often. And most of the venture capitalists here are impatient and they want return on their money pretty quickly. They also are, from my perspective, they want a lot for a, for a little money. So we've actually, uh, there's, there are two other routes you can go. You can either do an early IPO um, and try and get money from the market. That, that is, can be effective. There's a lot of compliance issues then in uh, once you're listed and you're either either on the ASX or NASDAQ uh, that you have to comply with. And that takes the whole team of people to do that. Um, but it is a nice way to do it if you can get it. Usually starting in where we are, where we haven't even done phase one trials, the success of an IPO and how much money you can raise is limited, but it's a possibility. What we've decided to do rather is to try and raise uh, private equity. In other words, go to people who have got uh, high net worth people who are interested in potentially helping people with stroke and heart attacks. And hopefully that's the majority of people because almost everyone has a relative who's had heart troubles or, or a stroke. So we, we're gonna try and do that. Whether we'll be successful, I don't know. But if we're not, then we'll go to the IPO route. The venture capital market, is active here and it does fund some research but usually uh, somewhat later research than what we're doing at the moment with this which is which is pre-phase one research you know if we can tempt you into writing a cis paper on the need for more patient venture capital funding for medical research in australia i'm sure we'd have a winner <laughs> on that yeah, look, topic. i think that's a very important issue in the united states for example one percent of all superannuation funds goes to biomedical research to do drive this and you can imagine the size of their superannuation pool we've got a big superannuation pool here in, in the terms of trillions of dollars that's sitting there and if we just could have one percent of that or even half a percent that would make a big difference um not just uh, private capital also uh, australia's education minister alan tudge seems very keen on research commercialization and in fact some vice chancellors like university of melbourne vice chancellor last week had an op-ed uh, supporting research commercialization. Do you think universities should be engaging in this sort of commercialization or is this something best left for you know, people, researchers outside the university sector? I, I, I certainly think that they should be the, um, um, they should be nurturing uh, translational research and moving on to commercialization because after all, universities for their research depend very heavily on the public purse and i'm sure that many people uh, either through their taxes or through donations are looking not only for the advancement of knowledge but the application of that knowledge so i think they have an onus to really uh, play a major role in being the mother of translational research and then subsequently commercialization the commercialization itself, universe, a, lot, a lot of universities have commercialization arms, but they themselves don't have the wherewithal to commercialize 
and to really focus on a product. So um, I think their options there are limited, but they definitely should be fostering it uh, and supporting it uh, to a great extent. Now, the other issue I wanted to make, it's often said that Australia is good at science, but bad at commercialization. And while there's some truth in that, the reason that we're not that good at commercialization is that we haven't had the support of government in terms of tax incentives and other measures to try and help commercialize um, basic science. By comparison, if you look at, uh, we, we, we are much higher in terms of output of high quality research than say Israel, but Israel is much better at us at commercializing because they've got a government has really provided lots of tax incentives and initiatives to try and get people to, to um, put money into biomedical research. Our viewers may not be aware that you had a very high level career in the United States at the Cleveland Clinic, which is one of the, the, the big three medical research uh, institutes in the United States. I would say Cleveland, Harvard, and Johns Hopkins, uh, before coming to Australia and leading the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute. How would you compare the research environment between you know, a top level US institution like the Cleveland Clinic and a top level Australian one like Victor Chang? Yeah, look, uh, you know, I was also at Harvard and MIT. I did a sabbatical at MIT and actually started initially at Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, which is one of the, the premier um, universities uh, in, in the United States. Um, I think we have a very strong culture of research here in Australia, and I, I don't see a lot of difference. Um, uh, I think we're maybe perhaps a little, still a little parochial, but, but because we're smaller, and that makes the grants a little more difficult when it comes to reviewing because our pool of researchers, everyone knows each other. So it's somewhat incestuous. Whereas the United States is so much larger, it's so easier to handle grants and have people who aren't conflicted look at them, et cetera. But, but apart from that, much like the United States, which is a meritocracy, I mean, when I was over there, being in Australia, if anything was an advantage, it didn't matter where you're from, as long as you did good work, uh, people accepted you. And I think by and large, that's true here in Australia. We get people from all over the world and it doesn't matter to us where they come from. They will do well if they're smart and put out lots of interesting good work. Uh, so, and there's, there's a lot of uh, interaction between us and the United States and also between us and people in, within Australia. So uh, they're both very collegial um, uh, centers to work at and uh, I, I actually very much enjoyed my time in the United States and would have stayed there but for family issues to come back here and start the Victor Chang. Uh, that's part of my role as an institute director and as an academic where I've been which is clinician scientist driven in that I've been on the boards of a number of companies as I mentioned to you the company we started in 2002 I was a founding board member I'm currently on the board of a listed company that's an Australian company, but domiciled in the United States. So I've had a lot of, I've headed up our intellectual property and commercialization committee for many, many years. So I've had a lot of exposure to, uh, to commercialization. Uh, admittedly, this, I've never started a company before, so that's my first venture into that. But look, uh, uh, I still very actively have my own program and I enjoy that. I still enjoy seeing patients. 
And but I like to see the research make a difference. And the reason I'm getting involved with this is because I believe that it has the potential to save people's lives and improve their lives. And so I'm happy to adapt to becoming more commercial and less medical and scientific. Yeah, I mean, do you really think that the, the profit motive is ultimately going to save people's lives? Is that what it's all about? It's not the profit motives that's driving us. It's the, the opportunity to develop something that will make a difference to improve people's lives. The, the, the profit mo motive is in somewhat secondary. You need money to develop these products. And I can tell you for every one of biotech company that starts about uh, only about one in 18 actually makes it. And there's a lot of people that uh, don't make any profit at all. If you hit it big, you can make big profits, but that's certainly not what's driving us because in fact, the chances that we're going to succeed uh, are still, still not there, you know? So uh, we've got to now rely upon other people's money to, to help us develop this. And they're the ones that are sticking their necks out. And if it wasn't for some uh, potential reward at the end of that, which is the profit, those people wouldn't invest, which is understandable. So it's not profit driving us, I can assure you. It's very much the ability, the desire, and the belief that we can do something that'll make a big difference. Professor Bob Graham, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you. Let me also thank uh, Nico Malian, our producer, Max Hawk Weaver, executive producer. The director of the CIS is Tom Switzer. Next week, we will have Peter Baldwin talking to us about climate change and the rise of China. We hope you tune in to see us then. Thanks everyone for watching and thanks for watching on Liberty.